Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, thanks for joining me for another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. As always, super honored to be spending this time with you this week. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about the co-occurrence of chronic pain and PTSD. Now, in the general population, chronic pain and PTSD co-occur in about 10% of the cases. But when we look at our population of veterans, 50 to 80% of those with PTSD also have chronic pain. So this is an important topic with regard to the care of our veterans, as well as for the practitioners who treat them. Joining us today to discuss ACT, chronic pain, and PTSD is Dr. Matt Herbert. Matt is a research psychologist at the San Diego VA and assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of California at San Diego. His research interests include the study of the biopsychosocial factors related to pain perception and pain disability, as well as mindfulness-based approaches to pain management. On today's episode, Matt will, of course, discuss acceptance and commitment therapy, chronic pain, and PTSD, as well as his landmark paper, which can be found in Pain Medicine in 2019, called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Does Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Influence Treatment Outcomes? Okay, I'm excited to share today's episode with you. Let's begin and meet Dr. Matt Herbert. Hey, Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here this week. Hi, Joe. Thanks. Nice to be here. I was perusing through some research the other day online, which so many of us do at times, and a study of yours came up, which I think is really great, and that's why I reached out to you to talk about it, because I know it's one of the few, or potentially even the first study, to look at active chronic pain with regard to PTSD. Before we get into that study, because I know everyone's going to be really interested in the outcome and your findings, can you tell us a little bit about your work at the Center of Excellence and Stress for Mental Health? Yeah, sure. And thanks for discovering my articles. Appreciate that. like to know. People are out there reading the stuff we're putting out. I did a postdoctoral fellowship at CSAM. So that's the Center of Excellence for Stress and Mental Health. So this is one of the newer centers uh, that the VA has organized. And this has come out of sort of the more recent conflicts that we've had, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. The center is really targeted on some of the conditions that are stemming from that, primarily post-traumatic stress disorder and mild traumatic brain injury, traumatic brain injury things like that. So this is a group of researchers that are dedicated to both the treatment as well as the more bio understanding of the conditions. And so that's how I got started collaborating with some researchers over there and how I sort of found my way into the PTSD research world as a chronic pain researcher. And tell me what, just kind of anecdotally, what are you seeing within the VA with regard to PTSD? Let's talk about that first. The most commonly diagnosed mental health condition that we're seeing, particularly among like the, the younger veterans, yeah, so very active PTSD clinic at the San Diego VA as well as all the VAs. And from that too, a lot of different researchers looking at various ways of treating this. This is obviously a complex condition in part because like we'll talk about, it doesn't occur in isolation like many things that come out of this, highly comorbid with a lot of different conditions which makes it complex. So people are looking at different physical activity interventions for this, sort of treating more 
cognitively, the neuropsychologists are working on the cognitive piece that, that kind of comes with that. And like myself too, interested in treating chronic pain and then what happens when sort of PTSD is part of the presentation. So lots of different types of practitioners trying to help the veterans, obviously, with PTSD that, that you're seeing at the VA there. Tell us what the relationship between chronic pain and PTSD is. Yeah, so going back decades, the observation came that these two conditions hung together fairly tightly. You see this in civilian populations, some studies suggesting anywhere from 10 to 20%, and then the veteran populations, depending on sort of what cohort you're looking at, as high as 80%. So researchers started looking at it, well, what's going on with this? And started seeing commonalities between the two conditions. And from this came some models, some theories about this, some of the more popular ones, the mutual maintenance model, which this was back in 2000, was hypothesized that these common elements are sort of you see both with PTSD and chronic pain, avoidance of certain types of, of activities, sort of more of a hypervigilance towards certain types of threatening stimuli, whether that be stimuli that might cause pain or some stimuli that might cause some sort of fear response. From that, people started first noticing it, making a model, you know, theories about what may be explaining this. There's been several studies supporting these models, not perfectly, of course, but just suggesting that what happens in PTSD might be either a prerequisite or just a something that maintains the severity of chronic pain, and then it's the vicious cycle, so that chronic pain, what's maintaining the chronic pain, tends to sort of worsen or maintain the PTSD. So in a way, you're kind of stuck and not really able to, to move. Yeah, I know there's more and more interest in this topic. Relationship or potentially the bi-directional relationship between chronic pain and PTSD. I want to make sure we mention your paper so everyone can Google it and take a look at it if you're obviously um, a researcher or a practitioner. So it was in the 2019 Journal of Pain Medicine, and the title of the paper is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain. Does Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Influence Treatment Outcomes? And obviously, Matt was the primary researcher on that. What's the rationale of using ACT to treat people with chronic pain and PTSD? Acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, one of the newer cognitive behavioral treatments that are out there. And Joe, I know that you're very familiar with this approach. So the goal of ACT is psychological flexibility, which, you know, which refers to this ability to move forward towards valued life directions, regardless of the unpleasant internal experiences. And these could be things like thoughts, emotions, memories, or physical sensations like, like chronic pain. So ACT often gets its title of being a transdiagnostic treatment. And the rationale for that is the same basic therapeutic approach is implemented regardless of the condition. It might be tailored to certain conditions, whether it's for smoking sensation or PTSD or chronic pain, but the same treatment elements are all there. It's helping People be aware of present moment experiences, distance from the thoughts that are going on in my head and the reality that they might be suggesting, sort of see thoughts as, as thoughts, and to be willing to accept some of the unpleasantness that might come along if doing so means you're, you're moving towards a, a valued life direction and hopefully driving as much quality of life out of life given what circumstance you might be dealt with. So... From that rationale, then, it might be that because this is a transdiagnostic approach, veterans that are in treatment for chronic pain that also have PTSD 
they might sort of benefit across the board from the treatment because it's helping with things that might be also common with some of their post-traumatic stress symptoms. But that was a question that was never asked. And so the reason why doing uh, this study. Is that the only psychological intervention that you're currently exploring in, in your work? Or do you have you touched on other things like CBT and other types of approaches? Not only actively studied it. When I first moved to San Diego, I did my graduate work at University of Alabama, Birmingham, UAB. And that was, I'm a clinical psychologist, and that was primarily CBT approach. But through my own interest in mindfulness and meditation and things like this, I was exposed to ACT treatment at the San Diego VA. And so it was kind of good timing. This was sort of the newer treatments that was, was of interest. So and to, from a research perspective, I've primarily been within the ACT world. As a practitioner, I've ran different types of groups and done different sort of mode treatment modalities like dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. From a research standpoint, though, I've been primarily in the ACT world. So tell us about the aim of your study. People are interested to hear a little bit about it. Yeah, so just a little bit about the study. This was a secondary data analysis. The primary project here was a non-inferiority randomized controlled trial. And this was looking at how effective in-person acceptance and commitment therapy for chronic pain was compared to video teleconferencing delivery of acts. So like how we're doing video teleconferencing here, fairly established in the pain field with good efficacy. And so the parent study then was saying like, okay, does this work just as well for delivering it through a telehealth wave delivery? So that's the setting of the study. Uh, that's another paper that's out there. Readers are interested in publishing in the journal of pain. What this study was though, is veterans came in for the baseline assessment. These were all veterans they got the structured clinical interview for DSM-4 at that time. It wasn't quite the DSM-5. And within that, they did a comprehensive workup for post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's how people got sort of put into the PTSD-positive groups or PTSD-negative groups was from this, this diagnostic interview. And so this was an eight-week treatment, 16 minutes, again, delivered either in-person or video teleconferencing. And participants got sort of our questionnaire battery at baseline, mid-treatment, post-treatment, and then at three-month follow-up and six-month follow-up. And that questionnaire battery, can you tell us a little bit about the type of measures that you were tracking? Yeah, so the primary outcome was pain interference. Again, for the parent study there, that's within the ACT treatment studies, you know, we're tend to be more interested in pain interference and seeing if treatment helps pain be less a barrier in terms of your sort of behaviors, whether this be regular social functioning with your friends, your, your work functioning, how much it interferes with your sleep and mood. So primary outcome is we're interested in how much pain was less of an interference in your life. And so other measures were, we did measure pain severity, how much pain people were experiencing, chronic pain acceptance, acceptance of pain being sort of a part of your life, pain-related anxiety depression symptoms, and we also gave a measure of PTSD symptoms to measure change in PTSD symptoms. Mm. And why is this study important? I mean, you obviously measured a lot of things there, and obviously this is an important group that we want to try to help. But why is this study kind of important to the greater context of looking at ACT for Pain through the lens of, of TSD? Well, yeah, it's kind of through those, like those mutual maintenance models and things that we were discussing before, a lot of this interest came out again like 20 years ago, noticing that if you're an individual that had chronic pain, 
and you also had PTSD, then much higher symptom severity compared to those that had chronic pain alone or PTSD alone. You know, there seemed to be this synergistic effect that happened there where you're seeing greater levels of pain, greater levels of depression, pain-related anxiety, as well as greater use of like substance abuse, more likely to drop out of treatment. So you really saw that when these two conditions were present, more severity in, in a lot of different domains. But as far as we could tell, no one ever asked the question of like, well, how do individuals like this do in standalone psychosocial treatment like, like ACTS? We knew that they might be doing worse at baseline, but we didn't really know how they would be doing after going through one of these eight-week treatments and at follow-up of the symptoms. So that was really the looking at the literature and, and finding that this really wasn't ever explored and realizing I had the data to look at this. That really was the motivator to get going on this. Yeah. And I just want to clarify for people who are not as well-versed in trauma, you're not saying, and just to clarify for both practitioners and the public, you're not saying that everyone with chronic pain has PTSD, so to speak. No, 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 of course not. And like I said, some like in the civilian, like sort of more like broad samples, I mean, we're talking about maybe seven to 8% of a co-occurrence. When we look at then like sort of a veteran population where the incidence of something like PTSD is even higher, we also see the co-occurrence of it being even higher too. And of course, you know, when we do studies, and Joe, I think, you know, you know, there's some doing studies, we often are looking at means compared to other means. And so it's sort of trying to get at sort of the average person. But of course, these are all individuals with their own different contextual things going on in life and difficulties. So yeah, certainly not suggesting anything about a given person, but also acknowledging that within the populations that, that I do like work in, you do see this two things going together and typically in different domains, sort of worse severity. No, thanks for that clarification, because there's confusion and potentially a myth out there that if you have chronic pain that has been resistant to treatment, that potentially you had a trauma somewhere, whether it was recent or in earlier life, and that is the reason why your pain has persisted. And of course, there are definitely people that fall through the cracks who are not being treated for trauma, but it doesn't mean that everyone with chronic pain has a significant history of PTSD. So I think that those are important because I get a lot of emails from people with pain looking for the solution. So that's just the reason why I wanted to talk about that. Within the frame of trauma, in your study, you talk about re-experiencing avoidance and hyperarousal. And I think that was part of the PTSD, the way you measured the symptom severity. Can you talk about those three things, just a little bit re-experiencing avoidance and hyperarousal and what they mean? Sure. So clinically, to get a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, there's one or more events that occurs to an individual where there's some sort of life-threatening elements to it, but it also could be something like a serious injury or some sort of like a sexual violation, something like that. Again, this traumatic event happens. And then from the DSM-4 standpoint, they looked at a cluster of three different symptoms. The DSM-5 has added another cluster, but sort of historically speaking, the three cluster of symptoms that they were looking at to meet diagnostic criteria were these re-experiencing symptoms. So these were things like having flashbacks, nightmares, things like this. And then the avoidance cluster, this was symptoms that were either trying to avoid certain types of thoughts or avoiding certain places, people that were reminders of the trauma, so that cluster. And then the hyper arousal 
cluster. This is things like feeling on guard, being aggravated, and things like this. So these are all the different PTSD checklist sort of questionnaires that are often used to help make this diagnosis. We're looking at these three clusters and seeing if this interferes with your social occupational functioning and if these symptoms have lasted for one month or longer. So Mm. broadly speaking, that's how the diagnoses of PTSD happens clinically. I'm not a, a PTSD expert with folks in the PTSD world. And so That's why in the context of this research study, we also gave that PTSD checklist, that PTSD questionnaire, and I was interested in the act treatment would sort of change any of these different clusters. Yeah. It's interesting because that avoidance that you mentioned and the hyperarousal, when I read through those questions in your study, a lot of them are almost very act-informed questions, if you will. And it almost makes you think of, okay, with regard to act, there's a lot of exposure in act and helping people open up to some of the things they're avoiding and even helping them open up to the uncomfortable sensations in their body that are linked to that sympathetic arousal. So when I look at that, I'm like, wow, this is really good to help inform someone's treatment. So tell us what the main findings of your study were. So we looked at sort of two different ways of looking at the data. I was interested in first, compared to baseline levels, when people entered the study, how much improvement were we seeing at post-treatment And were the differences between the two groups, both the PTSD positive and PTSD negative groups? And then the second question was, well, how are the participants looking at six-month follow-up compared to baseline levels? So both how well do we do in treatment and then how well are those treatment gains maintained over the six-month period? What we found there is between the two groups, again, this is the PTSD positive, PTSD negative groups, there was no significant differences between baseline and post-treatment levels. Rather, regardless of whether what group you fell into there, we saw significant improvements across the outcomes. And that was, again, pain interference, pain severity, pain acceptance, pain-related anxiety, and levels of depressive symptoms. There was a non-statistical trend for pain acceptance for those with PTSD to show Less increases in chronic pain acceptance versus the PTSD negative group. It wasn't statistically significant, but there was some signal there. When we looked at the baseline to six-month groups, looking at the maintenance of treatment gains, that's where we found that those that have PTSD, they did not show as much long-term improvement in depression symptoms relative to those without the PTSD diagnosis based on the SCID, the diagnostic interview that we gave them. But in the other outcomes, they still showed significant improvements. So still, compared to baseline levels, they were still showing, people in that group were still showing improvements in pain interference, pain severity, and also chronic pain acceptance too. Mm, Excellent. That depression piece is interesting though. And it's probably worth us talking a little bit about because there is that bidirectional link between depression and chronic pain. Any reason that you can kind of hypothesize about why at that follow-up, and you're talking about six months after the study, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Right. Why the depression may have been a little bit resistant to treatment. Anxiety was significant, and that lasted after post-treatment, correct? Yeah. So again, non- it was a trend. I mean, again, we can talk about p-values as a whole another <laughs> podcast. With pain-related anxiety, too, that was also not statistically significant, but the trends were also suggesting that those with PTSD did not have as much improvement relative to baseline as those without PTSD. So yeah, so both with anxiety and depression, which they themselves are tightly interrelated, 
And then you talked about the relationship between PTSD and depression, which of course is very tightly related. And yeah, I mean, it's some of the PTSD researchers that I work with, it's, they'll say it's, you can't talk about PTSD without depressive symptoms because there's so much overlap there. In particular with the DSM-5 criteria, they added, I talked before about the sort of the three clusters, they added a fourth cluster for DSM-5. That fourth cluster was negative affect. So even really hitting upon a lot in acknowledging that PTSD often comes with these depressive-like symptoms that sort of come with a condition. Looking at the data, the data is what it is, and interpreting that data, our belief really was that while ACT for chronic pain, there was evidence that this is helping people with chronic pain that also have now PTSD, it was helping a lot of the pain domains. But when it comes to the depression domain, because of course there's this depression-chronic pain relationship, but it might be that that depression-PTSD relationship is it doesn't have anything to do with chronic pain. Or rather, there's a lot of pieces that are independent of chronic pain within that. That the treatment just wasn't either powerful enough, long enough, well integrated with elements of more PTSD-focused treatments to really see these gains maintained long-term in depression. Because again, we also looked at measures of PTSD symptom severity, and we saw something pretty similar. Among those that had, again, the chronic pain and PTSD, we saw that at post-treatment, there was a reduction on our measure of PTSD symptom severity. And we were seeing reductions in those three, like the hyperarousal, intrusive memories, intrusion, and the avoidance clusters. But those two were also not maintained at six-month follow-up. And really, our interpretation was, well, in the short term, it seems like this act that's focused on chronic pain, it does alleviate symptoms in both PTSD and depression. But long-term, we're not able to maintain those gains. And we really felt like, well, maybe there needed to be a little bit more PTSD-focused intervention, again, whether that be either longer or more directed towards PTSD itself, maybe integrating more PTSD-specific exposure in there, like sort of the hallmark of prolonged exposure, one of the leading evidence-based treatments for PTSD in there to really maximize the effectiveness of the intervention. Yeah, I noticed I was reading through your paper that the participants received, I'm familiar with the ACT for Pain protocol that you use in the study where people are getting about an hour for eight weeks, but I know that protocol is not very heavy on pain exposure or exposure in general. So that was one thing I was like, well, this is really interesting, that one piece, I mean, there is exposure in every part of ACT and every, almost every process, but there are certain trends toward more and more exposure, especially with regard to certain populations, anxiety being one, chronic pain being one and PTSD being another. But the other thing that came to mind is with protocols, obviously there's an act for pain protocol, there's an act for depression protocol, there's an act for PTSD protocol. And I know these are the kind of things that researchers spend their, their entire life sometimes studying. But do you think if you took the same group and applied an act for depression protocol with the same measures, would you potentially have received, and this is all just talk, but do you think the same pain interference would have improved but potentially the depression factors or the the measures would have persisted for a longer period of time? Potentially. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of the outcomes that we measure tend to be pretty highly correlated with each other, even themselves, in some ways seem like improvement in one domain certainly goes across improving in the other domain. And I think that's kind of on us as researchers to find better ways of capturing important constructs that are related to 
what we actually want to see happen in treatments. Although it's a transdiagnostic treatment, but then it's like, well, but we see act for depression, act for chronic pain, act for anxiety. I think some of that is just be with in the larger medical context. These are seen as discrete conditions that they need to be these discrete clinics that get treated in. And if I'm an individual and a doctor tells me that I have depression, it's like, well, I want to go get treated for my depression. So it's, it kind of all relates like that too. So, I mean, one thing I'd be interested in is we see some movement here. Do we have more transdiagnostic clinics where we're getting more treatments that are trying to cut across a lot of different things? Is there any way of addressing things that a given individual may be experiencing? For some people, it might just be chronic pain. For someone else, it might be pain and depression. For someone else, it might be substance abuse and depression. Is there a way that we could help people deal with this the challenging of making desired behavior change, which is hard for every human being. Really trying to get at that so we can really start helping people try to live more of a meaningful life as much as they can. And of course, the spirit behind ACT, but ACT is of course operating in a a medical system environment that we can't just change overnight. Yeah, really, really well said, Matt. I mean, I think when you think about psychological flexibility and knowing that it's transdiagnostic. But yet, you mentioned our medical system and the way research is set up, we still kind of put things in silos. And we wonder as clinicians, is this really the best way to care for someone? And sometimes it is, and maybe sometimes it's not. Humans are very varied, and obviously they need lots of different types of interventions. What's been some of the feedback that you've received from your colleagues about the study? Yeah, so pretty positive. SBN, Society of Behavioral Medicine, earlier this year and gave a talk on this study, as well as some of the findings that I had in regard to medications that people were, were using and, and seeing how those medications also played out. Definitely interest. A lot of people attended that talk. And I think because PTSD is so known, it went from years ago as relatively unknown condition. And now when I tell people that I work at the VA, they go, oh, so do you treat PTSD? Yeah. And it turns out I'm involved in it, but there's a lot of interest, I think, because of the wars that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan. There were different types of combat. We had a lot medical care. We saw a lot of veterans returning that has a lot more veterans were actually surviving conflicts that 20 years ago, maybe they would not have. And with that, I came, became much more acknowledged condition that was going on. And that was a really good thing because we really, really needed that. So from that, yeah, there has been some interest. It's still a relatively newer paper that came out. But yeah, I'm glad that we did the study and shed light on this and get people to keep on talking about this important relationship between these two. You mentioned something earlier in the podcast, which I kind of just held it for a moment. This is part of a larger study where you looked at ACT in person versus ACT provided via the internet, I believe. Can you give us a little view into what's more effective potentially? Yeah. So that paper, it was my first time delving into these types of analyses. That's called a, a non-inferiority approach. And so you see this a lot in medications where like, say someone, a drug company had like patent on a drug, and then they're going to make more of a generic. At that point, they don't want to say, is this drug better than this drug? They, they more want to say, is this drug no worse than this drug by a certain margin? You're almost testing a, a null hypothesis in a way where you want to see if these things are equivalent. And that's what we're doing with the in-person versus the teleconferencing delivering of it is in-person works here. Does teleconferencing work right around there? For the most part, we found it did in terms of, again, the primary outcome being this measure of pain interference. 
it was, as I say, non-inferior towards that. A couple of the other outcomes fell without outside of that non-inferior range, but not statistically significant. The only thing we did find, like the two main findings from that were, one, you were more likely to drop out of the treatment if you're getting a video teleconferencing modality. And so that was interesting. So like in person, we don't really know why. They didn't differ on measures of satisfaction, but maybe it's also because the people that dropped out, they didn't come back to fill out those measures. So people were more likely to drop out of the video teleconferencing condition. And then in terms of, we had a measure of looking at activity levels and those that had the in-person delivery at six-month follow-up, they were showing greater improvements in terms of activity levels versus those in the in-person condition. So the main takeaway there was in terms of the primary outcome the study was powered to look at and things like that, it did seem to do about equivalent. So certainly that's your only option of delivering ACT for chronic pain. Definitely do it. What did seem to be some advantages within person, potentially less dropout and some benefits long-term within person relative to the video teleconferencing. Mm. In terms of this study, I certainly was interested. Well, the veterans that have, again, chronic pain and PTSD, where they somehow respond differently to the video teleconferencing versus the in-person. I didn't find much there. We're dealing with small sample sizes in those groups, so you have to be careful of your interpretations. Interestingly, the means suggested that at mid-treatment, the in-person might have had a bit of a benefit over the video teleconferencing, but at post-treatment, six-month follow-up, there wasn't anything detecting, but there's just small sample sizes, so I don't fully trust those means, but nothing really indicative at this point anyways. Excellent. Thanks for sharing a little bit of that other study with us as well. And we'll find that study and we'll link to it in the show notes so that people can read it. Cool. Matt, it's been great having you on the podcast this week. I appreciate your time and, of course, all the work you're doing with ACT and chronic pain and PTSD and everything else that, of course, is related to it. If people want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing, how can they find you? Yeah, so I am still a recent faculty member at uh, the VA San Diego uh, Healthcare Center. I am still involved with uh, CSAM. That's the Center of Excellence for Stress and Mental Health. And yeah, so I'll provide you with a link where you can click on that. It'll take you to my bio and that will have contact information if you want to contact me and would be happy to answer emails, answer questions. Great. Of course, you can find all the links that we mentioned in today's interview on the Integrated Pain Science Institute, where we'll include the links to Matt's work, as well as the link to the Center of Excellence for Stress and Mental Health in San Diego. So you can check out Matt and all the great work that's going on there. Again, I want to thank Matt for his time. Make sure you share this episode out with your friends and family on social, on your favorite social platform, and stay tuned to the Healing Pain Podcast for new episodes next week. Okay. Thank you. for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. That's IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends. 